0: morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you open up to the book of Esther. If you do not have a Bible, feel free to grab one of those that are pew in front of you. And if you don't actually have a Bible of your own, please take one of those Bibles home as a gift from us to you. As you're opening up to the book of Esther, let let me just set up the scene a little bit. Uh, Hollywood over the years has made dozens and dozens of films, either based directly on a book of the Bible or on some biblical theme. As a matter of fact, the golden era of Hollywood was marked by the biblical epics of Cecil B. DeMille. Esther, as a book, is, is no stranger to that phenomena. She's got three films made of her, or the book's got three films made of her, and, and even a 2018 off-Broadway play. And, and if you've been at our reading service last week, you know why. Esther is a, an amazing book. When you let Esther just come to you off the page, it is full of everything that makes for a blockbuster. It's got empire, intrigue, beautiful women, overconfident man, plot twists, irony, humor, uh, uh, gratuitous sex, all through the book. I mean, what else do modern movie audiences want, right, other than a theater to go see a movie in? But it, it's got everything. Esther not only has those things that we might associate with modern movies, it's also got the deep themes, power, trust, despair, taking chances, being bold, even though you don't know what the future might hold. Esther's got even more layers than that. It's a book about being marginalized, being the minority, being in a world that is stacked against you. Wondering what is it that you hope in or look to for change, Esther has all these things. It's about confidence wrongly placed. It's about control that's an illusion. It's about the things of this world that seem so big, so powerful, so permanent, but they end up as nothing more than a footnote in one of our history books remembered by very few people, maybe ancient Near East scholars or Christians who are studying the book of Esther. That's what Esther's about. Esther's about a hidden king, a mover behind all movement, the primary agent of hope, power, and change, although he's never seen, heard from, or even mentioned by name once. That's what Esther's about. Esther's about that hidden king that is more active than you know. He's more in control than he seems, and he's more powerful than all the rulers and all the empires combined. That's what Esther is about. Best of all, this king saves people. He saves them practically from their situations. He saves them powerfully. He saves them personally, and he saves them eternally. Esther is a lot more like our world when we look around than some of the other narratives in the Scripture. God seems absent. Doesn't seem like anyone's in control. At least Anyone who has our good in mind is in control. We feel like we are alone and on our own. But Esther promises otherwise. This morning, as we look at Esther chapters 1 and 2, we have quite a lot to jump into, so I really hope you were either at our reading service and heard the whole book, or at least read ahead so you kind of know what we're going to cover. I'm not going to read every verse, but what we're going to talk about are introductory themes to put on the table that really set us up for what's to come in the story of Esther. We're going to talk about power that's in this world, our perceptions of that power and how that shapes the way we think and and feel uh, things, and what's really going on. In short, Esther's one, Esther 1 and 2 is about power, perception, and what's really going on. Well, let's start with the first one, power, because that's exactly how our book starts this morning. That's, that's really the sense, the driving force of the first nine verses, power. Let me read you the first few verses, verses 1 through 4. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. This is power. Did you catch the, author, the author's note? This is inescapable, unavoidable power that's everywhere. The Persian Empire was the power of antiquity. It stretched as far to the east as India there, and it went all the way to the west, right up to Greece in that circle there. On the south, it was Egypt, and on the north, it was bordering Asia Minor, Southern Europe. It was massive. Now, you might be wondering, okay, I'm kind of new to the Bible story, or I know the Bible story. I thought I thought Babylon was the big power, and I thought Assyria, what, what, what's going on here? And you're right. After the Assyrians rose to power, the Babylonians knocked down the Assyrians, and they took over the power. And after the Babylonians rose to power, the Persians rose to power and knocked on the Babylonians and took over their power. What they effectively did was took over the expanse of their entire kingdoms. It's not like each superpower had to take every city over and over and over again. They just had to take out the capitals and the centers of power, and then they owned everything. That's why in the biblical narrative you hear of Assyria, Babylon, and Persia so often being these massive powers because they just took over each other's capitals and distributed their new policies and regimes. And here we are in the story of Persia, a massive empire. I, I put the star to show you where Susa, the capital, is, what we're, where, where our story is taking place. I put the arrow so you know where Jerusalem is, so you kind of orient yourself. What I want you to see obviously, you know, they didn't have planes, trains, and automobiles. If you were wealthy, you had a horse. But the most of us would have to walk. And there's nowhere you're going to walk in this empire where you can get away from it. No matter how far you might want to walk or you could walk, there's nowhere you're going to go your entire life where you're not under the sphere of this superpower. It is all pervasive. It is everywhere. Similar to what... In the New Testament, John the Apostle talked about the world. Do you remember that? And John talks about the world, and he's using that as a metaphor to represent a system so massive, so pervasive, so all-consuming that there's nowhere you're going to go in your life where you're not impacted by that world and its regimes and its policies and its worldview In a similar way, the author is setting us up to recognize this is a powerhouse we cannot reckon with. And at the head of this power, at the head of this uh, uh, system of all-consuming empire is King Ahasuerus. Now, if you might have an NIV, if you you have that translation, you see Xerxes there, and you go, ah, oh, is the Bible wrong? That's not what's going on. Ahasuerus is his Hebrew name. Xerxes is his Greek name. So those translators just decided to use his Greek name there. There's not two different people. We are dealing with a system, a, a very multicultural, multilinguistic land. And so you often hear people, for example, there's the name Esther, but her Hebrew name is Harasa. So it's not different people, it's just different languages referring to the same person. At the head of all of this is Ahasuerus, Xerxes the one. For those of you who are history fans like I am, this is the same Xerxes who, of, uh, uh, who was king of the Persian Empire at the famous battle against the Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 B.C. So if you know anything about history or if you just like war, military tactics, you know of the Battle of Thermopylae, this very Xerxes we're reading about was the king of Persia when he went against Greece in 480 BC, which means if you connect the dots that Queen Esther was the queen of the Persian Empire during that culturally significant war campaign that set the cultural trajectory of all of Europe for 2,000 years. I mean, we're not going to get into that, but I just think that's an amazing side note that behind the scenes, here we have um, what we just read three years later, roughly three years later, Xerxes is going to march against the Spartans, and Esther is somewhere there in the background. As a matter of fact, the feast we're reading here in verses 1 through 9 is likely a celebration feast of Persia's victory over the Egyptian armies and or Ahasuerus, trying to instill the confidence of his generals and his provinces in the mighty power of Persia on the cusp of his Grecian campaign which, if you know history, inevitably failed, which is why Western civilization was able to flourish. Uh, Persia never took over Greece. That's another story. But that may be what's happening right here just before they're about to go off to the Grecian campaign after finishing Egypt. Ahasuerus throws this humongous feast for 180 days, roughly six months, of displaying his royal power. But it's not just power. It is power opulence, wealth, excess and abandon. Look at the verses 6 through 8. I mean, there's white cotton curtains, violet hangings with fine linen, purple, silver rods, marble pillars, mosaics of pottery, marble, mother of pearl, precious stones, couches of silver and gold, goblets of gold and other kinds of material to drink. Everyone is enjoying themselves. Everyone is partying. This is the Mardi Gras, Carnival, New Year's Eve, every frat, sorority, drunken party you ever been to where the booze and the indulgence has no end. Can you imagine what that's like? Don't raise your hand if you can. You might get some weird looks, but you get the idea. The author is pointing a picture of power and opulence and wealth. You're supposed to be impressed, okay? You're supposed to be wow. You're supposed to be, if you're the original readers, you're supposed, you should be too, impressed. You should be intimidated. You're supposed to be intimidated. You are supposed to get the message loud and clear that unless you get on Ahasuerus' gravy train, it will roll you over. There is no other choice. You have to be a part of this empire because like we don't call the shots, we are out of control. Ahasuerus is in control. This is the world of Esther a world of power, of wealth, of opulence, a world where we, the reader, are not in control and you cannot escape it because it is everywhere, all 127 provinces everywhere. There's a reason that the author put that note. If you thought there's some place you could go to get away from this, you cannot. And by the way, if you're a rational Persian of the fifth century BC, why would you wanna get away from Persia? Isn't it desirable? Isn't everything we want there? Who wouldn't want to be surrounded by all of this? In some sense, friends, this is a a comprehensive picture of the lives we lead, the worlds that you inhabit, the situations you're a part of, good or bad. You cannot escape it. The power structures are firmly in place. Why not just go along with it? Besides, what's the alternative? There's nowhere we can go. But notice... In verse 10 and following, we go from the macro to the micro, and the script's about to get flipped. Things are not as desirable or as powerful as they might seem on the surface. After the massive feast, I'll read verse 10 in a little bit, but after the massive feast, uh, for all the people, there is another party for just those that are at the citadel. That's uh, seven days longer, right? That's the after party of the massive party. And we see that verse 10, let me look at, well, let me back up to to verse 5, you can see about this after party, when those days were complete, the 180 days, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, so it, it kind of zooms in now, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So there's this after party, and verse 10 tells us, on the seventh day, When the heart of the king was merry with wine, that's a a euphemism probably for Ahasuerus, was about sloppy, fall-down, drunk. And as men and women are inclined to do when they are drunk, they do not make good decisions. They don't think rationally. Ahasuerus is no different. He calls upon his wife, the queen, Vashti, to come out and be displayed, to be ogled by all these drunk men. It's like a frat party. And we know that because in verse 9, look at verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So the assumption is they're having this after party, and Queen Vashti has her party with the ladies, and so King Ahasuerus gets all his guys together and having their own separate party with all more booze. And he says, not content to show off his wealth, he wants to show off his wife not to content to say, I am the conqueror of all the lands. Let me show you my other conquest. He says, Vashti, come on out here. Now, if you know anything about Persian culture, which most of you don't, at least ancient Persian culture, why would you? You don't call a woman out. Well, I was going to say, this is true probably culture, every culture. You don't call a woman out to be ogled by men, right? There shouldn't be a culture that allows for that, but that's what he says. Vashti, come on out here. I want all these nobles and all these men to look how beautiful you are. The text says she was lovely to look at. And so he wanted to march her out and show how beautiful, basically, his trophy wife. he has got no respect for Vashti. And in ancient Persian culture, that was something you did with concubines. And so to have the queen do this as a display of his power was a slap in the face. But Vashti will have none of it. Look at verse 12. And the rest of the story arc is set up from there. Verse 12. But the queen, the queen Vashti, refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. For all Ahasuerus' power and control, apparently he has no power or control over his own queen. Uh, if Twitter was a thing, the hashtag Vashti said no would be trending, right? <laughs> that this would have been spreading everywhere. Now, do you see the first irony though? Do you see the picture the author's creating? And do you see the first irony right here? Power does not make you a king. Authority does not make you a ruler. Riches, or excuse me, wealth does not mean you're rich, and opulence will not get you ease. And Vashti's Vashti, her decision has just disabused the king of any of those ideas, and he's mad, and he's very mad. As a matter of fact, if you know the story, in in typical male logic, the king says, well, if you don't want to come in front of me now, then you can never come in front of me ever again, to which I'm sure Vashti said, yes. Very good, right? She got what she wanted. She just played him, right? The point is, the king then banishes Vashti because she refused to come into his presence. Now, before you get all, you know, you go girl and beat the feminist drum, Vashti is not being put forth as a, as a heroine here any more than Ahasuerus is being put forth as a villain. I'm going to set that up real clear because when it comes to the Old Testament... We can tend to look at it through looking for the moral examples. And even as I shared with you, the, the contemporary Jewish reading of this book, where you boo when you hear about Haman, and you go and you cheer when you hear about Mordecai, reinforces a very shallow view of the world, that there's just heroes and villains, and we support the heroes and we're against the villains, but you all know life is not that simple and cut and dry. So Vashti is not this heroine for defying the power of this patriarchal system, neither is Ahasuerus, the villain, because he happens to have power, the point the author is situating, he's presenting with us, one has power and the other doesn't. Having power does not necessarily make you guilty, just like not having power necessarily makes you innocent. That's not the dichotomy that's being shown here. Now, you may have power and abuse it, like it seems Ahasuerus might be doing here, or you may not have power and try to usurp it, which it seems Vashti might be doing here. Let's look at the text, verses 16 through 18. After Vashti says no, and, and the king gets mad, and he asks, what should he do about this? Look at verse 16. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, for the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Okay? We need to be very careful. This is not a book on marriage counseling and the relations between husbands and wives. That's, that's not what's going on here. Now, there is so much happening here right? And there's so much in this book that our modern sensibilities might recoil at. But keep in mind, friends, we are 21st century Americans reading a 5th century, Persian, 5th century B.C. Persian document. There's going to be cultural differences. Now, we can all agree that the king constantly and the men here are acting petty and so small. That's to be clear. But we don't want to flatten the Bible and say, okay, this is obviously the woman coming against the patriarchy and and shutting it down, and that's always wrong, that that's not the point. The author is trying to show that power, even the power of Ahasuerus is earthly power, and all earthly power is limited. For example, it cannot change hearts, didn't change Vasti's heart. Earthly power cannot um, undo or do away with sin. We're going to see that play itself out too. And therefore, ultimately, because earthly, earthly power is limited and cannot change hearts, it can change behavior, but cannot change the human heart. It cannot undo sin. That means, ultimately, earthly power can never promise lasting peace or secure genuine joy. And we're seeing a, a, a microcosmic version of that played out right now between Vashti and Hashuaris. So, when we read Esther, don't look to Vashti or Esther or Mordecai, who we'll get introduced to in the next chapter, or Ahasuerus, or anyone for moral guidance or examples, because the reality is nobody in this book seems to be what they appear. None of them are quite what they seem. And that's why the second point I'm talking about is perception. We're talking about, we looked at power and there's all these levels of power and the dynamics of power. Now we need to look at perception because as we move into chapter 2, the very first verse, it seems pretty clear that Ahasuerus regrets his decision. And it's almost implied that maybe Vashti regrets the way she complicated things as well. Either way, pride has made a ruin of their relationship. Now that is a marital counseling tidbit you should take, Right? Let me look at it. Chapter two, verse one. After these things, after these things, when the anger of the king Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti, and what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Oh, let's 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 keep the themes of the author for all the power, all the power and control that Ahasuerus has. He could not control Vashti. More to the point. He couldn't control himself. You see how I said? Twice, he was enraged with anger. His anger abated. For all the power he has to dominate an empire with all of his nobles, he didn't have the power to control himself." Proverbs 16:32 says, "Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 25, 28, a man with self-control is like, excuse me, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Let me explain that because that seems a little bit odd to us. In ancient times, a city had to have walls because if you had walls, what could you do? You could control the flow of traffic. You could protect your people. You could control the affairs of what was happening to your city. If your city had no walls, marauders and bandits would come and go, pillage your city, and you were defenseless. You had no control over your city. I hope that gives you insight into why the building of the walls in Nehemiah is so important. And so what the proverb is saying is a man who doesn't have control over himself is like a city without walls. Everything else is going to control him. And we see right here, this man, Ahasuerus, with all this power, but no real control or wisdom. Friends, power without wisdom or control is a sure way to destroy your life. And it's not just, it's not just a man. And let's, let's, let's talk about this. If you have power, if you're a woman or a man, you got power, right? And all of us do. All of us have a certain amount of power. You may just have power over your children and your family's affairs. You may have power over a Fortune 500 company. We all have some power. If you've got power, pray for self-control. Pray for wisdom. Because power without those two, as we see, will ruin your life. If you have self-control, if you have wisdom, friends, according to the Bible, you have the power that's necessary to live life well. But here we're seeing power without control and wisdom and, and how that unveils in this man's life and in the kingdom. But chapter 2, what, what chapter 2 is significant because it unveils the competition that young Esther is going to find herself in, and basically, as you were here at our reading service, this is a rated R beauty competition, right? In which the only thing that matters from the contestants are her youth, right, her beauty, And her ability to sexually please the king. That's the only requirements here. Let's look at it. Chapter 2, verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Skip down to verse 4. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Will this please the king? And he did so. We see later on in the chapter, verses 16 and 17. Esther finally gets her night with the king. Believe it or not, it's about three to four years after what we just read in, verse, uh, in chapter 1. So, this audition, this beauty pageant has been going on for about three to four years with the king auditioning women to be the new queen. And in verse 16 and 17, Esther gets her chance. And, and Esther pleases the king so much that he immediately makes her the queen. Let's take a look at it, verse 16. And when Esther was taken to the king, Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, do you remember verse 1 and 2, what year of his reign was it? It was was, was the third year. So, here it is, four years later, and they've been running this beauty pageant for four years. Um, So, you can imagine how many women the king has been auditioning by the time Esther gets there. Verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And apparently, Esther blew his mind, because not only did he make her queen after one night, look at verse 18, the king gave another feast for his officials and servants. He also granted a remission of taxes to everyone and gave gifts so, Esther was really impressive. He's like, you're going to be the queen. As a matter of fact, everyone tax for a year, and let me give you more presents. She's amazing. That's Esther, the queen. And then chapter 2. Chapter 2, this chapter ends very um, strangely. It, it almost like it doesn't fit. And I hope you've learned when we study the gospel of Mark, when you come upon a text that doesn't fit, there's a reason it's there, Right? The challenge is, as I said, we're 21st century Americans. This is 5th century B.C. Persian. Why is there, or what's the author's intent? How does it end? It ends on this celebratory and conspiratorial note. The queen gets her own feast. We just read that. And Mordecai discovers a plot by the king's eunuchs to assassinate him. Both of these, this celebratory note and conspiracy, actually show the hand of God. Let me read it, and let's unpack it. Starting at verse 21 of chapter 2, "...in those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus." And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. How, is that? how does that fit? Well, it's the perception thing we've been talking about. Notice how our narrative begins. The perception is that Ahasuerus is strong and powerful, and Esther, this young Jewish girl, is weak and powerless, but the reality we're seeing quickly is very different. Chapter 1 opens with Ahasuerus securely in charge, running everything well, but chapter 2 tells us how fragile his sense of security actually is because his own men plan to assassinate him, and the one that saves him is not himself but someone that the Lord had placed providentially there. Chapter, chapter 2 introduces us to this young Esther who is powerless and has no ability, and yet the chapter ends. She is now the queen of the most powerful empire of the world. So the one that starts seeming in control, we find out he's really not in control, and the one who seems like she's not in control at all is now brought into the seat of power. So the perception of things is not what we see. We see the hand of God already working. More to the point of what I'm trying to get to in the second part, though, is the perception of Esther, right? So, we're starting to realize that what we're seeing, the perception's not quite really what's going on. We see that with Ahasuerus. We see that right now with this interaction with the conspiracy. But it's the perception of Esther as upright and Mordecai as faithful, which I want us to talk about for a little bit because I think it could be very different. In fact, the matter, as you'll soon see, I think Esther lacks conviction and Mordecai lacks humility. Let me explain what I mean. So, we are in post-exilic history of Israel. What that means is after the exile, right? It is past when Assyria and Babylon destroyed the Israelites. 5, uh, 723 for the Assyrians, 586 for the Babylonians. Israel no longer exists as a nation. They are gone. The people of God have to rely on something to, to identify themselves as the people of God. They have to recognize of what they call their, their, their Jewish identity markers. Here's a tip, you note takers. If you want to know what the, the Jews think of to this day, what identifies the Jewish mindset, three letters, three words, temple. Torah territory that is the identity of the Jewish people now because of the exile they don't have temple and they don't have territory and so they have to cling on whatever it is that marks them off as the people of God and this is where the new testament issues become important those identity markers sabbath observance circumcision dietary food laws and avoiding intermarriage at all costs because the messiah has to come to these people it has to be pure and we see that really clearly in Nehemiah 13, when Nehemiah finds out that all the, the, the Jews that came from exile started intermarrying, he lost his temper, right, and he beat him up and made him, made him not get married anymore. These were really important ways to distinguish themselves as the people of God. Notice in the book of Esther, if you were here for the reading, we don't even hear about that, none of it. Neither on the lips of Esther or Mordecai, no one's even talking about Sabbath, dietary laws, right, circumcision, or avoiding intermarriage. What we actually do see is Esther and Mordecai ignoring all of these. In fact, did you note as we listened to it last week, two times the writer says Mordecai commanded Esther to hide her Jewish identity. Wow. It also appears that Mordecai is the reason for this whole mess to begin with because the way he treated Haman and got Haman upset and wanted to wipe out all of Mordecai's people. We'll get to that more next week. Now, you might say, well, well, maybe Mordecai was a righteous Jew and didn't want to bow the knee to the, the Gentile pagan rulers. Well, if Mordecai was driven by the conviction of Torah and wanting to be a devout Jew, why does he tell Esther to deny her or hide her identity? twice. It doesn't quite add up. Could it be that Mordecai, he's more like you and I than, than this righteous, amazing biblical figure? Maybe he's just obstinate and proud and doesn't want to give a Gentile bureaucrat the respect that his position deserves. Maybe Mordecai was just too willing to start an ethnic fight. Maybe Esther was too willing to sleep her way to the top. And I know in our cultural time, that's a bombshell to say. But that's, again, let's not think as 21st century Americans. Imagine 5th century life, B.C., where your existence was hand to mouth even at that. We look at this whole idea of a harem as the supremacy of a male patriarchy and the objectification of women. Those women, many of them wouldn't have sought the same way. Many would. Many would. Many wouldn't. Because if you got chosen to be the king's harem, that meant that you had a life that you could survive, a life of luxury, a life of ease, and you would make it. And you only had one job. And for them, that was worth the trade-off to survive and flourish. It's hard for us who don't understand what it is to live day by day what it means to get a ticket to a better life given to you. That is a reality. And, And here's the thing that's exploitation. It's, that, that's what power does. Without wisdom or self-control, power exploits. And there were many women who were exploited, and there were some who wanted to be exploited. And it wasn't just to the women. Herodotus, the Greek historian, tells us every year, 500 young men were castrated so that they could serve as eunuchs for the king. Power exploits us all doesn't matter if you're male or female, educated or not. Power without self-control and wisdom, worldly power does that. If you think think I might be being too harsh, I'm not. If you look at the history that many rabbis over the years tried to reconcile the moral ambiguity of Esther and Mordecai, as a matter of fact, in the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the… the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. It would have been the Bible that many people had from first century B.C. to first century A.D. In the Septuagint, there are over 100 verses, extra verses, in the book of Esther, and they're all on the lips of Mordecai and Esther, Esther lamenting how she hates to take the bed of the uncircumcised pagan, Mordecai lamenting how he has to eat the pagan's food, they don't know how to reconcile the moral ambiguity of their characters, so they added a hundred verses more in there. But the original Masoretic text, which is the text that we've translated from, none of those exist. The writer's happy to let ambiguity sit. If I'm being honest, for all of Mordecai's good points, if you read the text like we did last week, without kind of bringing your VeggieTales understanding of this book to it, you know, without without bringing all the stuff we know of Esther, if you just listen to it, for all of Mordecai's good points, he does sound like a hot-headed, hard-headed guy who does not want to simply give any respect and could have avoided a lot of this trouble if he just learned to be respectful to those in authority above him. And at the end of the day, It's hard to avoid the most obvious straight reading of Esther, as morally disappointing as it might seem. I mean, I'm talking about her actions, that she was a Jewish girl that didn't observe the dietary laws of her people or any of the Jewish identity markers and jumped into bed with the king for a chance at a good life. You even see that tension between Mordecai and Esther as he's pleading with her to do the right thing, and she's not quite sure. Esther is very unlike Joseph, who denied a very powerful woman's sexual advances and was sent to prison for his integrity indefinitely. Esther is not like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were in very similar situations in the court of pagan kings, threatened with death, but they would not bow the knee or deny what Yahweh had asked of them. The simple, hard fact is when Esther found herself in a hard place, she did not resist. She compromised. Now, some of you, maybe you feel like I'm taking the Bible away from you, or at least the book of Esther, okay? I'm going to give it back, I promise. The problem, friends, is not with Esther or Mordecai's clay feet. Who am I? Who are you to judge them? I'm not sure I would do any differently or any better than them. The problem is not that they compromised. The problem is that our perception of the Bible is shaped more by moralism than the gospel. The Bible is not a collection of great moral examples, ethical heroes, and and spiritual giants. The Bible is the unfolding of humanity's brokenness, one sinner at a time, and yet God's amazing grace working through and in them regardless of what they've done. Abraham lied and doubted God. Moses lost his temper and patience, and misrepresented God. David committed adultery and murder. Saul killed Christians. Peter could never keep his mouth shut. Mark left the mission field and abandoned his friends. And on and on and on we go. We can give you tons of examples of failure. And in each case, God redeems them, and He uses them, not only in spite of themselves, but sometimes because of their failures. Friends, as shocking as this may sound, do you realize what Esther, the book, is teaching us? That the salvation of God's people hung in the balance on this one night of immoral sex. Had Esther not pleased Ahasuerus, Haman's plot may very well have succeeded. If so, all the Jews would have been wiped out, including the Jews just a few years earlier who left Persia under the decree of Darius and Cyrus and Darius to rebuild uh, Israel under Zerubbabel, which means there would be no people of God, which means no covenant people, which means no Messiah, which means no salvation, which means no hope for humanity. All this hinges on this very ungodly night. Now, friends, just to be clear… I am not condoning immoral sex as a way to advance God's purposes and magnify God's grace. Don't tell anyone, especially you teenager types, hey, what'd you learn in church today? Oh, it's about Esther and how God uses immoral sex. So, hey, let's get it on. You know, that's not the point. I'm not condoning immoral sex. And I'm not, I'm not, I know my family's so embarrassed. <laughs> I'm not besmirching Esther or Mordecai's character either. The point I'm making is that if you're thinking of Christianity is that it is a religion where you have to have your moral perfection all squared away and God's plans depend upon your moral obedience, you're never going to understand Christianity and you'll never understand grace and the gospel. That's the point I'm trying to get at here. This book, friends, it's it's full, it's full of sinners, uh, 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 of sellouts, of wretches, of morally questionable people, unreliable men and women, desperately clinging and hoping in a God who's none of those things, and He loves us, and He uses us, and He changes us because He is gracious and because He is powerful and majestic, not because we're all that in a bag of chips and have it all together, because we clearly see that we never did and never do and never will. That's the point. And I'll never forget when for me that that reality became so true in my life I had come from, you know, what Colossians 1 says, darkness to light and, and, and death to life, and it was a radical conversion, and, and so I was like, man, I'm going to do everything the Bible says, whole hog, which is a good thing, but over-the-top kind of thing. Everything's black and white. And then I met a woman, I love her to this day. Uh, she was this tall, by 6'3", beautiful, blonde woman, wealthy, lots and lots of money. If I said her family name, almost all of you would know her fam- her, who know her family, so I'm not going to say her name. She was using her wealth and her power to establish and launch careers of believers in the entertainment industry, and she came along our path, and she, wanted, she saw something and broke in broken silence and said, hey, I want to I pour into you boys, and that's what she called us, her boys. Every time we met her, it was a big kiss on the cheek and her jewelry, and she smelled like rich and money and, and alcohol, alcohol. I don't think I ever saw a time with her, and I do love her, but I think she was always tipsy, right? She'd always show up at our band practices, and she'd come out of her car, her chauffeur-driven car, and either she had a champagne glass or a martini, and that's always, that's all my images of her, and I love her, because she was so wonderful. And I remember her sitting us down, and yes, she was tipsy. She said, boy, sit down, sit down, come along, sit down. Right in the middle of band practice, we put our stuff down, and we sat down, she says... You guys, you might blow up, which was, she didn't use that, that's a modern term, but she said, You guys are gonna be the next big thing. I got a feeling for it. And and she had launched some big careers, and you guys are next. So let me say something to you important. If you think, boys, if you think you're never gonna screw this up, if you think you're not gonna be an embarrassment to the Lord, if you think you're gonna be fine out there, You're wrong. You're going to screw it up. You're going to make a mockery of the thing you say you love more than anything. But when you do, boys, when you do, when you realize you've embarrassed Jesus and you're not worthy to talk about the gospel, the key is you need to own that. You need to confess it. You need to embrace it, and then repent of it, and get back in the ring. Can I have another? Get back in the ring. Because if you think you are above sin, you're not. And if you think you're beyond grace, you're not. Oh my gosh, I'm late to my flight to London. i got to go, and she'd be gone. That was her. She was right. Friends, Christianity isn't the belief system of those who are just got their ducks in a row. We shouldn't expect the people in the Scriptures to be the same. No one in the book of Esther is really doing what they should be doing. But if you know your Bibles, that shouldn't surprise us. As it is written... None is righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we've seen the power where our perception is changing, our perspective is changing. So what's really going on? Is Ahasuerus the real king who's in control? No, we figured that out. Is Persia the real ultimate power to contend with? No. Is Esther and Mordecai the true heroes of the story? No. There's another king in control. There is another power at play. And his throne is not a drunken frat party, but full of majesty, glory, and grace. Do you realize that other than the throne room of God, the only other palace that's as described as God's is Ahasuerus's? You can look all through scriptures, and nobody's palace is described except for God's and Ahasuerus's palace. But the contrast couldn't be starker, couldn't be starker in scope in scale and wonder. Friends, in reading Esther, you might get the sense that God is nowhere, but hopefully you're beginning to see that actually God is everywhere, while the kings of this earth kind of swing their scepters, oblivious to the true king who yields his. What's really going on in Esther? If you're a Christian, there should be hints of the familiar there, right? For example, a little faith in the right king is worth a whole lot more than a lot of faith. In the wrong king, that there is help. For the helpless. If we begin to recognize our need and our desperate plight and our helplessness, don't miss the gospel themes in this book. It is not a matter of matching power with power. If that's what you think it is, you miss the point. And that's part of the problem of postmodernism. We think everything is in views of power those who have it, those who don't, those who oppress, those who are oppressed. And we miss the point. Esther does not win because she matches power for power, Esther wins because she re- relinquishes her power and claim so that she can be obedient to the purposes of God. That should sound really familiar to another biblical character to you by now. Someone who had all the power and authority and relinquished that so that they could sacrifice themselves for us. Esther's trying to teach God's people to see God even when He's hidden to plain sight. Let me conclude by no. sharing about there, there's this painting it's a Rembrandt it's in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam it's one of his most famous paintings called the Night Watch it's actually at the very top floor of the museum it's at the very end of a very long corridor and it sits there almost enthroned as if it was enthroned there and it's enormous It's about 13 feet by 16 feet now, art teachers will take their students there to teach an important lesson of their craft. And the assignment is simple. Find Rembrandt in the painting. Naturally, students will examine the corners to look for his signature. There are none on the night march. Next, what students will do, well, they'll start examining all the faces because Rembrandt, for those of you may, are art fans know, that he would often paint his face into the paintings he made. And students will look for that, looking at every face, and there's quite a lot of them only to be disappointed because he's nowhere to be found. Then the student, going from the most obvious to the less obvious, looks for subtle clues, right? Fragments of Rembrandt, a symbol of some sort. And typically the lesson ends with the student concluding, he's not here, I don't see him anywhere. To which typically the master teacher, never taking her eyes off the masterpiece, will say something like this, you look for a signature, but you miss the subtlety of his artistic style. You look for his face, but I see the character of his brushstrokes. And that is why you see the art, but conclude that the artist is nowhere, and that is why I see the art and conclude that the artist is everywhere. In a world where God seems hidden, Esther reminds us he's everywhere. We look for the signatures and the obvious. Esther's a book that reminds us to look for the subtle in his character. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for grace. Father, we thank You that we can read a book about people who are acting in ways that are inconsistent with what we think they ought to do, and yet You continue to use them, and yet You bring about one of the greatest acts of salvation from individuals that are a lot like us, flawed, scared, not sure what to do. But Father, we, we do get the sense especially towards the middle and the end, that they are clinging on to the one hope that they know they have. Even though your name is not mentioned, we don't see a miracle. We don't hear of the great things from the rest of the Old Testament. We clearly see in this piece of art, you are everywhere. Help us to take those lessons to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ's community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.